AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 9th, 2017. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Mike Klepper online. And uh, Mike, you're a part of our consulting organization. Tell us a little bit about yourself since you haven't been here for a little bit. And uh, well, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, I'm the practice director for application security, threat, and vulnerability management inside of AT&T Consulting. And we help uh, clients of AT&T keep their networks and applications secure. All right. Very good. And that's the theme of the program here. So we look forward to talking with you a little bit later. Uh, we have John Hoglum here in the studio. And uh, welcome, John. Always good to be on this side and it's let you host. <laughs> All the pressure's off. Well, you know, we're in a new studio here. You had the uh, the premier experience right, the in our new studio. Uh, right. Of this <laughs> right. new studio. Yeah. yeah. So how do you like it so far? Uh, it's okay. It's not bad. Yeah. I kind of like this. I don't put a... We can look at each other more directly. <laughs> don't, put a, <laughs> don't put a rolly thing on the table here. And Manny, welcome back. Thank you. And um, I hope some things are going on this week as opposed to last oh, week because yeah, there wasn't much going on no, last week. There's absolutely a lot going on this week. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I'm Brian Rexroad. And you know what, Mike, we're going to go to you first. And, um, you know... There are all kinds of little phishing scams going on. I think it's a, it's really valuable to get a kind of a good perspective of the the little tricks of the trade. So uh, it looks like you have a really good example here. What do you what can you tell us? Yeah. So uh, in this past uh, several weeks, there's been a non-targeted phishing campaign that's been making making the rounds, and that's very important to differentiate between a targeted phishing attack and an untargeted phishing attack. Right? Targeted phishing attacks really are, are very much trying to, and there, there'll be a lot of data mining that goes on behind the scenes. They're really looking to profile the individual, the organization, the situation, to give it a lot of legitimacy. Yeah, you know, actually, you, you, you bring up a, a very good point there because oftentimes there, I mean, this is one of these, like, uh, it's almost a misuse of the term. Oftentimes they refer to a targeted phishing attack as a spearfish but more often than not that I've seen, spear fishes aren't really a phishing attack as we define phishing. They're usually trying to send some malware payload and infect the machine so you can get some, yeah, get some open so, attachment. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, but your, your definition is actually correct in the sense that uh, a targeted phishing would be, they do research ahead of time, try to figure out who you are, who you might be corresponding with, and then use that as a means to try to make the the uh, phishing more uh, uh, convincible, so that uh, somebody would take on it. This is a case where they tend to just blast them out to bazillions of targets and see who takes it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. This is very much the spray and pray approach, yeah. uh, if you will. And so the the focus or the the kind of form that this particular attack takes is that uh, the victim or the target will receive an email with a PDF attached to it that claims to be an assessment report, uh, it claims to be a secured PDF, and instructs the user to click a link in the body of the email in order to decrypt the attachment. And if you're familiar with 
secured web mail type of environment um, where you may not necessarily have access to a third party's network or something like that, such a request isn't entirely unheard of. So, you know, think of Voltage Email, for example, the one that, that, that uh, you know, is very popular, a lot of organizations use. There's an attachment, you know, click here to open. You know, you, there, there's some similarities there. So it kind of preys mm-hmm. on a little bit of, of similarity there. Um, when the individual clicks on the link, a pop-up box is displayed and requests their email address and their password for authenticating them. It doesn't matter what is typed into that box. It's purely a solicitation designed to capture those credentials and send them outbound of the environment. So the user, thinking that they have a secured attachment, they enter in their likely domain credentials for their, their domain there that they're working as a part of, and then those credentials get you know, sent back to the uh, third party who could be mm-hmm. you know, aggregating them for sale on the underground or you know, for direct use and compromising that environment. Um, and what, what made me think about this is very interesting is a couple of things. The first is that you know, as an attacker, you want to try to live off the land as much as you can, right? If you start trying to deploy software, things like that, you heighten your chances to be caught. Using things like this that isn't necessarily deploying malware to harvest credentials, you know, is kind of in keeping with that theme. Also, I saw that um, as part of the, the research on this, that the user received different feedback depending upon what the organization in question had installed on the endpoint. So if they actually had Acrobat Reader on the endpoint, Acrobat Reader would check for this and actually throw up a warning message telling the user, hey, something's trying to send your credentials out of the network. Do you really want to allow this to happen or not? If as an organization that's trying to contain costs and minimize administrative overhead, things of that nature, they're also trying to live off the land, right? with native capabilities into OSs, in Windows 10, Windows 10 with the Edge browser is going to natively use the Edge browser to open that PDF, um, which does not provide uh, that kind of feedback mechanism. Uh, Mm. So no error message, no warning message is is shown to a user in in that case. So, you know, we see here that there's a couple of double-edged sword situations kind of going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So from from a user education perspective, it's important to train your users on really what they should expect to receive and what a secured email looks like and what that process should legitimately request of them, right? So user education always comes into part of this. The other part of this, though, is as an organization, your IT environment, as you are looking at that endpoint and deciding whether or not you're going to you know, deploy some some add-ons or, or specific point products such as Adobe Reader versus relying on native functionality, really looking at exactly what the pros and cons there are and what those technical features uh, differences are. Uh, because you may be uh, foregoing a few niceties like pop-ups in this case uh, that would warn the user that something might be going on they should care about um, without knowing about it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you, you use you described a lot of things there, and I think one of the real challenges here is keeping the user training simple enough that they're really going to grasp what's needed. Do you have any advice around how how that should be done? You know, there's some simple things, right? So, like, you know, they shouldn't necessarily be expecting to see certain types of attachments originating from certain types of 
of mm-hmm. domains, right? So if it claims to be a uh, assessment report uh, about their cat or, or their pet, it shouldn't be coming to them from a banking domain or mm-hmm. or some other sort of non sequitur kind of kind of place. If they don't own a pet or they're not aware of any assessment that's going on, these things that seem out of context with their day-to-day responsibilities, mm-hmm. that's probably something to be suspicious of as well. From a, a user education perspective, it's always best to keep it simple. You know, if things, uh, you know, you should be able to provide a short list of maybe, you know, three to six items um, mm-hmm. that are fairly non-technical uh, for users to check. So if they're getting attachments of some kind, or messages that are, you know, out of context from their day-to-day job function, really seem out of place. Those are probably, you know, phishing attacks. That's probably not necessarily something that they want to click on. If they're yeah. getting, you know, pet assessment reports or something like that from a financial domain, you know, that doesn't seem to be legitimate, right? Uh, and then depending upon what type of endpoint solutions are deployed in any particular environment, there may very well be some specific uh, types of endpoint-related security checks that, you know, a user can click on uh, and quickly get a green light or some positive indicator that an email is legitimate um, that they can be trained on pretty quickly. Okay, yes, very good. I, I think that's some really good advice. I guess I'll add one additional thing that is for folks in an enterprise environment. It'd be really good if they know who they should consult with if they get something that's suspicious yeah. and to, uh, you know, make, make sure because, you know, you know, I think one of the things as an employee you want to be uh, cognizant of is that, that people will feel the pressure that, you know, if they don't meet a deadline or something, you know, if they're supposed to do something and it, uh, it and, and they miss it, it might uh, reflect badly on their employment. So uh, they would need to have somebody that they can consult with if it's suspicious and to, in addition, report anything that is suspicious so that you can determine whether there's any impact to others in the enterprise. It's less likely it's gonna be a vet-oriented, you know, pet assessment type thing as was uh, referenced here, but this is tax season and we see a lot of tax documents getting floated around as PDF documents nowadays. And so it would be a potential target environment um, I think just about every year we see something, you know, claiming to be IRS, you know, we're going to yeah. we're going to garnish your wages or something like that type thing. unless you respond to this audit, <laughs> not given any ideas here, but <laughs> that's a, that's the yeah, type we, of thing that, uh, that people need to be cognizant of. This, so this is a good example of what they expect coming soon. Yeah. And, the, and that really does tie in with incident response and making sure that, you know, your common users understand you know, just like if they're at the airport, right? If you see something, say mm-hmm. something. Uh, and encouraging a, a consequence-free culture uh, that way, um, you know, even if someone does make a mistake, clicks on this attachment, that they don't then try to hide the mistake and then compound the problem rather than yeah. stepping forward, initiating the incident response process and, mm-hmm. you, know, making, you know, making the situation known. Yep. Dwell time is one of the biggest things for uh, incident responders to be paying attention to. That is, uh, even if a problem does occur, that is, how long does it take to discover and, and deal with that problem is it has a significant uh, impact on what, what damage that could occur based on an incident. So it, it's a very good point. All right, Mike, thank you very much. That's, a, uh, I think, uh, a really good thing for folks to be paying attention to this time of year, especially. So, Manny, uh, you're up next here. And, uh, you know, I think the, 
we've got a term internally we call hyper automation. Right. And the, uh, the intent here is to, you know, get everything that we can possibly do, get it automated so that, uh, you know, as a, as a practical matter, the folks that are working on things, they have more engaging work to do. Right. Uh, we're not doing, you know, just wrote activities on a day-to-day -day basis and right. it uh, makes for a much more enriching uh, lifestyle. But on top of that, uh, it's a cost-effective way of doing things as well. That's right. There, everything that's good <laughs> can be used for bad. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. So, I mean, so this is, this is kind of, a, there's actually a couple of stories that are, that are involved here. Um, and the, the first one is, is talking about CAPTCHA. So, mm -hmm. you know, so CAPTCHA, completely automated procedures for telling computers and humans apart. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we all know CAPTCHAs, right? So it's that annoying thing that pops up that makes you look at some picture, some, it's usually some blurry picture of some words that you can barely make out, right? And you have to type mm -hmm. in, you know, what you're seeing there. And then usually you have to do it about four or five times yeah. uh, before you actually get it right. And so, you know, um, so the, the first part is kind of a cute thing. Somebody posted a video, it was uh, uh, somebody by the name of Matt uh, Unsworth posted a, a YouTube video showing um, how effective CAPTCHA can actually be. So he actually had a mechanical robot arm mm -hmm. with a capacitive uh, stylus in the hand and basically was on the mouse pad and just had the robot sort of make a couple of movements when he had a, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a robot checkbox. Mm -hmm. And the robot basically goes over, finally gets over to where the spot is, right? Makes a couple little hesitant moves like a human would. Mm -hmm. And then once he gets to the spot, he has the robot kind of tap it. And you get the little circle and the check marks. I didn't, I didn't realize that that's how that worked. So those captures are actually tracking the mouse pointer right. to see if there's see some if, randomness right. in there. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's it's doing some sort of checking there, and so you know it's it's looking for probably some sort of randomness, right? Mm -hmm. Some some sort of hesitation, whatever it may be, and then figures out, oh yeah, there's enough hesitation in there. When he checks the box, that's probably not a. You know, I know we're on a bad track right away when we start programming robots to be imperfect <laughs> like humans. But right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So so the video, you know, obviously clearly shows that he was able to fool the caption to believing mm -hmm. that this robot was actually a human. Um, to which the video ends with the robot removing the pencil away from the laptop and then doing what they call a, a mic drop. So he drops the pen and then he actually draws these little funny uh, sunglasses on the robot because he mm -hmm. actually has these squiggly eyes on the robot. So cute. Um, and uh, but the, the second part of this is um, the, the story actually talked about this new um, this new service that Google is now um, introducing, mm -hmm. it's actually in beta right now, and it's actually called Invisible reCAPTCHA. Mm. Um, so this is supposed to be the next evolution of CAPTCHA. Um, and so in essence, and there's not much, it's in beta right now, so there's not much information about the inner workings behind how they're doing it. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is, is that it now doesn't use the traditional like, oh, how is a person moving their mouse? You know, is, is it, it it's, from what I understand, it's actually using everything that sort of Google knows about the person sitting mm -hmm. behind the keyboard. So it's actually going in and looking at like, oh, is this user logged in on another tab on Gmail? Like, do mm -hmm. I know this user? Is, is they, you know, so it's mm -hmm. using other things that it knows, history, 
you know, in the browser to understand like, oh, this person usually browses to this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Is this somewhere in that realm of things that this user would do? So it's doing some sort of analytics on the background to understand what it, you know, is this actually a person or not? Mm -hmm. And and then it, you know, you click the button and it already knows whether or not you're a robot or not by the time you click the button. Mm -hmm. And so the invisible part is, is that they really don't even need a button anymore. Yeah. Right. So in essence, you can now, and in, in its beta form, there's three ways that you can do it. This automatic binding the challenge to a button. You can programmatically bind the challenge to a button, which in essence means you drop a little bit of, of, of JavaScript into your web page mm -hmm. and, and you can create your own button mm -hmm. for somebody to click. Right. And it basically does all this analytics in the background. You click the button and it, and it lets you know. Mm -hmm. And the other way is actually no button at all. Mm -hmm. You browse to the website, and the website, as soon as you get there, already knows whether or not you are or not a robot. Mm -hmm. Don't need the button anymore. So yeah. the invisible recapture. Yeah, interesting. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how well this works in, in different types of situations. But I and and not knowing a lot about how specifically it's going, it's it's working. It's hard to say how advanced it really is. Right. But. This is definitely a trend in security that, you know, um, I think you were talking about something in the previous program, and I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but it had something to do with, um, uh, oh, you know what it was? It was the, uh, the sequential passwords. I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, if you don't mind, but it had to do with the uh, daily password thing. Right, right, right. And uh, it, it was an attempt to improve the security of devices by having a rotating password. Maybe changing it every day was maybe too much, you know. Right. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, it, the, the notion is uh, it at least had the right intent behind it. But the, uh, I think ultimately what that comes down to is, is a case where there are better ways to do security. This is a case where they thought about security and didn't really do it well, but they were trying to do the right thing. Right. And what I think it comes down to is it's, it's kind of an unfinished solution to a problem. And I think there are a lot of security solutions today that I feel are unfinished security solutions to the problem where they'll have you know, encryption in place, but then the key management's kind of broken. And if you don't have user-friendly key management, then the encryption's not user-friendly, and then it, it, it becomes a detractor of the capability that re you're really trying to get to. Right. So getting back on this topic, I think that's where things really need to be going, is to be, maybe you can't get rid of the security checks that are needed, the, you know, check the button or even type in the blurry text or something like that. I've seen some more that are more cognitive type things where it, Shows you some pictures and it says, you know, something like, right. "Well, pick Click out on all the auditorium." Yeah, pick on, yeah, pick the ones that have storefronts or right, you know right, something right. like that. Was the one I encountered just the other day. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was just agreeing. Yeah, I've seen okay. those <laughs> certainly become more popular as well. Yeah. yeah, and but you don't want to have to use those all the time. And I think that's really where something like this, at, at the very least, can put you in a position to say, "Is this a suspicious situation where I need to go deeper?" Right. Or am I pretty darn sure this is the you know the normal behavior they've seen? This this person's moving their mouse in the same right. rate I'm used to seeing, and things like that. That you might be excuse me be able to skip ahead and not be too worried about it. And even just other activity that is you're protecting in an application ultimately. And if the application is behaving normally, you know you're not seeing an onslaught of botnet activity. If the new you know, concert tickets weren't just released. Right, right. <laughs> right. You can probably relax things a little bit. So cognizance of 
the environment as well as cognizance of the specific behavior, I think in combination can really make a big difference. And uh, those are some of the things that we're beginning to research as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Google takes us. Yeah, and like like you said, it's you know with the with the way that they've set it up now, the the traditional sense of the captcha is still there. So when you fail on the first, so if it, it, it thinks, hey, you know what, there's mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure who this person is, it'll fall back yeah, on the yeah. capture right. at that point. You know, I just, just had a flashback. Do you remember Max Headroom where it the was. guy got stuck in the it's video and he was kind of he was he was sort of the new the first bot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not I'm not so sure Mike isn't isn't actually oh, a I bot. remember. <laughs> <laughs> Because we've only seen Mike online, so I'm not right, so. Right. You know, there's a chance. There's a chance he's really a bot here. He got the humor though, yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm thinking maybe. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll spare you my Max Headroom impression. <laughs> very, very good. All right, John. So the next item here. You know, um, I'm thinking Forrest Gump here. You know, he had a, a sort of a. Sort of a line, stupid is what? as stupid does. Oh. <laughs> so you're going with the box of chocolates <laughs> one. So, stupid does. Yeah, so, uh, you know, not putting judgment. You know, I, I think that for the most part, these are likely just errors in judgment or at least errors in, you know, understanding the environment folks are in. But dig in, tell us a yeah. story. So, um, and you're right. So I think here's the situation. If you're using any of these big data uh, systems that have kind of been coming to the market over the mm-hmm. past few years here, like MongoDB, Elasticsearch or uh, Hadoop, um, you might want to pay attention to this story. Yeah, actually, uh, oh, go ahead, John. I'll interrupt you later. Okay, <laughs> plenty of time for that. But in any event, so um, about, uh, I want to say early this month, MongoDB and Elasticsearch, somebody in a bad malicious actor was going out there finding these unsecured MongoDB and Elasticsearch environments and downloading the, the data off of them, mm-hmm. deleting the database, and then leaving a ransom, making a new database with a ransom note in it that says, hey, if you want your data back, you got to like send me whatever, I don't know if it's Bitcoin or however they asked for it. Mm-hmm. Last week, there were some reports of a very similar thing happening with Hadoop. However, they weren't even asking for a ransom. They were just going in there, deleting all the data, and then leaving um, like a default directory that mm-hmm. said, you know, hey, you're out of luck. You should have you know, protected your data better. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about this that I find, uh, you know, like I can understand in a, in a way and kind of uh, going back to what you started discussing is a lot of these environments where they have these big data environments are in cloud services. So I might just be a user and say, I need a big data system. It's going to be in a cloud service. I trust that they're protecting it or they've got some, mm-hmm. you know, strong security measures around it. But a lot of them are exposed to the internet because that's mm-hmm. just the way that it needs to be interacted with mm-hmm. by maybe your application that's sitting off to the side somewhere or other applications. Um, so, you know, as a user of these types of environments, if you are in a cloud environment, you should evaluate who your service provider is. Yeah. What kinds of security measures do they have on them? Uh, what kind of authentication? Um, and uh, you should also plan to have some sort of good backup plan to back up your data on a regular basis yeah. just in case something Absolutely. like this does happen. You know, I think one of the things that is really important to point out here is folks that, even folks that are familiar with like Oracle database or MySQL database and some others, they're designed as database tools, whereas Hadoop, MongoDB, they're really designed as analysis platforms. And so they've, 
been softer about the security and the way they're, by design, they're softer about security. And they're designed to be in sort of an enclave environment as opposed to stuck out on the internet. Right. And so if you want to have access, access to it over the internet, you have to build a security boundary around it. They're not designed to protect the data. They're designed to facilitate analysis efficiently. Whereas you take Oracle databases in, in comparison, you can be very granular about the security controls as well as just access to the database in the first place. So I think there are two fundamental different philosophies behind the analytical databases and the relational databases that folks need to be cognizant of as they implement this new technology. Right. And I will say Hadoop and some of these other solutions like Accumulo that it's on top of Hadoop in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. they open a ton of ports up. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, they're kind of designed, they're expecting that the environment that they're in is already secured around at the network layer. Nobody yeah. else can talk to this thing. I'm not, you know, they're mm -hmm. assuming that you're doing the security around who can talk to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, Hadoop has at least five or six different ports it opens uh, by default. I actually have a slide just showing some of that scanning behavior on the next slide that shows, um, you know, in January, there was a couple of spikes of activity here mm -hmm. where there was a lot of scanning activity. It's not a giant amount, not yeah. enough that we would ever talk about it on our, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the internet and, weather report. You can pretty much see this kind of activity on pretty much any port that has ever been associated with an application. Right. And, but this, so. But this is just kind yeah. of, you know, saying that, showing that there are some yeah. actors out there specifically looking for these uh, mm -hmm. these types of services uh, in an insecure state. Yeah. Shodan is another good resource. We talk about Shodan a lot. Shodan will actually, um, give you some really good high-level measurements of which mm -hmm. ones are out there and whether they're unsecured. I believe they tag it when it's, um, you know, when it doesn't have uh, security controls around it. Well, and you bring up a good point. You know, we had we had John Mather on the program some time ago, the creator of, uh, of Shodan. You know, and he was just kind of trying to create an inventory of the internet. I think one of the things for folks that maybe, you know, say you're part of a security organization and not really sure what is exposed on your enterprise, that's a good resource a to go through. To and just, yeah. you know, you may be uh, apprehensive about using a network scanning tool or something because it could cause an outage and people would notice or something. It's already been scanned. Yeah, they've already done <laughs> it's it already for been you. done. So <laughs> use, use the tool to uh, learn about what's, uh, I mean, it's any attacker would have that available to them. You might as well see what the attackers had available to them. And if it shows up as something that concerns you, then you can go and start pursuing the specifics on it. Hopefully, hopefully, most of the people who had these open Hadoop installations were people who were out there just trying the new, like, oh, Hadoop's the new thing. Let me go try this out. Mm -hmm. And they, like you said, they stood, oh, they stood them up, right? Know. Other than you know, I'm I'm somebody who's really sticking yeah. my you know proprietary data into this database, and now I just lost it. Right, I'm yeah. a billion dollar business, yeah. and uh, oops. Yeah. How many times have you data. seen a, a proof of concept platform that turned into the production platform well, before yeah, you even know it? <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's something to be really cognizant of yeah. as well. Is as as uh, projects evolve, the tendency is that you know they'll start even if it doesn't officially become production, it'll become used in ways you didn't anticipate. Yeah. It, it's my what I you know the, we're familiar with the Peter principle where people get promoted to the point that they can't function properly. <laughs> the uh, it, it's kind of the opposite of that. There's this uh, what I call the uh, principle of security policy erosion. As you start out with a really nice concept and you know start moving along, and eventually it right. turns into and just a get sloppy, holes get created. Yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah. those sorts of things we need to be paying attention to as we uh, progress on, on the life cycles of, uh, of projects and systems. So, all right, very good. You know, I didn't have anything directly to contribute today except the interruptions for you guys, but it was a very good conversation. I enjoyed having you here today. And that's our show for today. And we'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us at email on atttreattrack at list.att.com. You can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes as an iPod cast. And uh, actually, iPod or a podcast, actually. Podcast. Here I am. We were, we were talking about iPods earlier. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got that on my brain. You can follow us on Twitter. Our uh, handle is at ATT Business. So I'd like to thank you, Mike, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Manny. Thanks, John. Yeah. I'm Brian Rexro. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.